We are wrapping up David. Are you ready? Yeah, some of you have been ready for a long time because you're like, hey, this has been long. Let's, let's, let's finish this thing. That means David will die today. Some of you are going to be really happy about that. All right. We've been studying the life of David, the shepherd boy who became king of Israel, a man that God describes as after God's own heart and an amazing life. More is said about David than anyone in the Bible except for Jesus. And so we want to study his life. But David, even though he is a man after God's own heart, he was a flawed man and he made sin. He committed, he, he did sin. He committed sin against God and uh, it brought dysfunction to his family. We talked a little bit about that. But today I want to see the three final lessons from the life of of David as we work through the end of 2 Samuel and then take just a half a step into 1 Kings, uh, which is the next book. So three final lessons from the life of David. Number one, David's life was all about doing God's will. As a matter of fact, Scripture says in the New Testament that he was a man after God's own heart because he was willing to do what God wanted him to do. So to do God's will, just know that he'll... God will give us strength to do that, as we saw all through David's life. But he'll also provide others to help you. God will provide us strength. That's the most important thing. But God will also provide others to help us as we are trying to do what God has called us to do, to make an impact on our family, our culture, our workplace, our community. He will help us to do that. Now, in David's life, he had his mighty men. How many of you heard of David's mighty men? And actually, that's covered. They are listed out in 2 Samuel toward the end of the book. And they're listed out in three sections. And the first section are the top three most. And, and that whole mighty men, that's just a way of saying heroic men. And to me, a hero and in and, and Scripture, a hero is someone who risk their life for somebody else. So the three most heroic of the 30 mighty men is the first section in 2 Samuel 23. And that is Jashim Bashabeth. All right? How many, how many of you heard of Jashim Bashabeth? Yeah, not all. We don't talk about him much. He's listed as number one. And this guy killed 800 men in one battle. So, and then the second is Eliezer. He, he's a guy, you might remember this from the Bible. He took a stand and fought the Philistines after his army retreated. He was alone fighting them, and God delivered a great victory. And after it was over, he couldn't ungrip his sword. His hand was stuck to his sword. Ever have it, that happen to you? I remember one time roofing my parents' house by myself with a hammer. And when the whole roof was done, I tried to toss that hammer down, and it didn't go anywhere. It just stuck, you know. I, all right, let it go, you know. That's him. And then the third is Shema, who also stood his ground after Israel's army fled. So out of the 30 men, these are the three greatest of David's warriors, and they were simply known as the three, the three greatest. The second section is two other guys 
who were more famous in Israel than the three, but they didn't measure up to the three. And both of those we've already been introduced to. One is Abishai, that's Joab's brother, one time killed 300 men with a spear. He was more honored than the three, but he did not attain to the three. And the next guy is Benaiah, David's bodyguard. We've actually talked to him about him a few years ago. He killed two famous warriors of Moab, two fierce fighters of Moab. He killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day, jumped down in a pit with a lion, killed the lion. And then he also killed an Egyptian champion, seven and a half feet tall. And he killed this guy, he attacked him with a club, took away the Egyptian spear and killed the Egyptian with it. So in our MBA, you know, we have like over 30 guys that are seven foot tall or over. This guy's seven and a half foot tall, but he's been trained since he was young to be a warrior. Benaiah dispatches him like no problem. And Benaiah is the head of David's bodyguard. That's second section. So you have three, you have two, and then there's 30 listed out. In the list of the 30, there's actually more than 30 names, so we don't know, is that just a term? More likely, it's because people are added after people die. For example, Uriah the Hittite is one of the 30. He's listed in here, but we know he died when David basically had him murdered because he slept with Uriah's wife and wanted to cover all that up. And so I think when people died, they were replaced, and so this, this list has a little more than 30, but that's what's going on. And then... 2 Samuel 23 tells us a story about one time shortly after David became king over all Israel and conquered Jerusalem. The Philistines heard that David had taken over as king. And so while he was uh, new to the role, they actually attacked Israel and almost cut it completely in half right up to Jerusalem. During this time, David was in a stronghold, not even in Jerusalem. And I don't know if that's because Jerusalem was under threat or he was out pressing the attack. We don't really know. But he's in a cave. He's got some of his men around him. And there's a garrison of Philistines, an outpost of the Philistines in Bethlehem, which is not very, very close to Jerusalem and happened to be David's hometown. And so David's in the cave, and then, you know, and he's probably kind of second-guessing the whole thing. He finally became king of all of Israel, not just Judah, and then now they're being overrun by the Philistines. And so he's there in his cave, and he realizes they have a garrison in his hometown, and he kind of just sighs to himself, although he does it verbally, and says, boy, what I wouldn't give to have a drink from the well at the gate of Bethlehem, like when I was a little boy. Well, three guys in his army hear that, and so they secretly leave the cave. They fight their way through the garrison at Bethlehem with a water skin, make it to the well. Two guys hold everybody off while one guy fights with one hand and fills the water skin with the other from the well. They cap it off. Then they fight their way out and they bring it to David. You know, how many have heard that story? It's weird because could you imagine being one of the Philistines? You know, you're there. 
your armies conquering this part. You've basically cut Israel into two by, by this big thrust through the middle, the center of Israel. And then here comes these three guys, these three warriors. It's like, hey, we're under attack, we're under attack. And hey, there's only three of these guys. And hey, they, they're really good. And hey, why are they fighting their way to the well? I mean, there's other places to get water. Why here, where, where, where we are? And they're fighting to the well, and then they're fighting, they made it to the well. And hey, what are they doing now? Now they're fighting their way back out. What? Well, what did they get? Some water. What? It's not like they don't have water. It makes no sense. When they get it to David, he realizes what they've done. He realizes that just because he kind of threw out this comment, he didn't intend for any of that to happen. And they bring it to him, and he can't drink it. He's like, these guys have risked their lives for this. And so in front of everybody, he pours the water out onto the ground as an offering to God. Because it's too valuable for him to drink. And, and a lot of times when I first read this when I was younger, I think, man, these three guys must be bummed out. You know, Man, we just fought all the way in there, risked our lives, fought all the way out, brought you this water and you poured it out. But I think it's just the opposite. He's saying, no, I can't drink a gift like this. It's too reckless. It's too expensive. You, you almost gave your life for it. This is the type of gift, this is the type of sacrificial gift that should only go to God. And he pours it out in front of him. And, and that day, God encouraged David with these three guys. We don't even know who they were. They could have been those three, probably were. But we're not told that specifically, the first three. But God uses them to encourage David when he's, he's just like, Wow, when will this, I'm on the run again after I've been made king? How's this happening? God will strengthen us. When we are trying to do what God wants us to do, God will give us the strength we need. But God also will give us other people. He will surround us, if we look for them, with other people with the same mind to do the same thing, to serve God in the same way. That's what church is all about. That's why it's important that you're at church, that you develop friendships at church, that you connect with people at church, that you serve at church, because we are here trying to do the will of God, trying to grow, learn more about him so we can grow closer to him, but also that we would be a part of what God is up to in this world today. That's what he's called us to do. I mean, think about it. They do all this. They risk their lives because the king's wish was their command. I mean, David didn't tell them. David didn't ask them. He just sighed. Oh, wonder what it'd be like. Wouldn't it be nice? And they took action. Really, that's the mark of a Christian. Religious people do whatever is required for them to get from God whatever they want from God. Christians, we want to follow the heart of God. We want to do what God wants done. And so when doing God's will, he'll strengthen us, but he'll give others help. First lesson, second lesson. 
do his will. And if we sin, if you sin, repent, and God will always forgive you. That's what happened to David. He's, it's already happened once in his life with that whole Bathsheba. But remember, for that to happen, he had to be confronted by the prophet Nathan. Because without Nathan, he was just going on. He had kind of covered it up. He not only covered it up, he, he kind of looked good. Yeah, I married Uriah's poor, bereft widow. Took care of her. What a nice guy I am. You know, it was, it was ugly stuff. And he's confronted. Well, David's not done with his sin. At this point later in his kingdom, as, as he starts getting victory over the other countries around him, and things are going very well militarily, David somehow, David and the country sins against God. We don't know all the details. But because of that, God allows Satan to tempt David to take a census of the land. And, and so that was normal. Kings kind of did that, usually for two reasons. One, for people to pay taxes. I mean, that's what was happening about the time of Jesus' birth. You know, that's what Rome was doing. And then also to know what you, what you could do with a militia for a standing army. And so even Joab, who, who's not your typical great God follower type guy. I mean, he's vengeful. He's, a, he's murdered two people at this point in cold blood who were not his enemies. I mean, this guy, even Joab is telling David, don't do this. This doesn't seem right. Don't do the census. But David prevails on him, and, and they do it. And, and so the big question for us today is, so why is this wrong? Why is it wrong to count the people? Even God counted the people. There's a whole book in the Bible called Numbers. So why is David as king doing this? Kings did it. God had kings do it sometimes. What's going on here? Well, there's two reasons this census was wrong. And the first one is God said so. We hate that one, don't we? You know, just like parent, you know, parents and kids I'm telling you, why, 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 why? Because I said, anybody use this? I use this because I said so. And so before we kind of rush off from this and think, oh yeah, there's that. You know, let's, let's unpack that just a little bit. So parents, we're in authority over our children. We need to take an active role in that. And it's legitimate, when, as the younger your child is, to say, when they ask why, you say, because, that's right, because I said so. Now, at some point, your child is going to grow up, and then they're going to push back on that, right? Anybody experience that? Yeah, that happens. And so someday, if your child comes to you, and they say something like, hey, I will obey you, this crazy rule you got, if... You can show me how that's going to hurt me, how that's going to hurt you, how that's going to hurt others in our community, how that's going to hurt the environment, it, you know, whatever it is. If you could show me what I'm doing is hurting those things, then I'll do it. Here's how you should answer them. And sometimes it's more like this. Look, child, or look, son, you're five. You know, what, whatever. You know, they, they could be 15 or five. Look. 
if you don't obey what I'm telling you as a young child, you will die from other causes. It was just like, hey, don't play in the road. You will die. Don't touch the stove. You know, don't play with the matches. Don't mess with that gasoline. You will die. I mean, that's kind of, it's for their benefit. It's not safe. But here's here's the principle. We need to have our, our children understand, just like we in our relationship with God, if we only obey God when what God says makes perfect sense to me, we're really not obeying God, we're just agreeing with God. There's a difference. God calls us to obedience. And just like a child who's five or 10 and maybe 15 cannot understand all the reasons that we're telling them no, although the older they get, the more we start interjecting and teaching them the moral reason why. So that's legitimate. When they get older, why, according to God, should we not do this? You know, and it, that according to God, it could just be, God gave me you to look after, and I don't think this is best for you. That's my job that God gave me. And your job is to obey. You know, that's legit. But the older they get, we give them, we tie in the moral reason why they should or should not do something. And, and why is that? Hey, yeah, as they get older, we tell them that. But when they're young, it, we have to get them to obey without asking why because they're asking a question they could never understand the answer to. Does that make sense? I'm kind of on a tangent here, apparently. We're actually going to get to that later, so I need to back off a little bit. Parents know more than kids. In a much greater sense, God knows more than us. And God's telling us what's best. And so if you're ever reading the Bible and you're thinking, and almost all of us do this at some point, you're reading the Bible and that doesn't really make sense to me. I don't really understand why that is. So I'm just going to kind of ignore that part for my life. What you're doing is you're saying, I'm smarter than you, God. And you're not obeying God. You're just agreeing with him on some of the things that he's saying. So since this is wrong, first reason, second reason since this is wrong is because this census is a reflection that David is trusting in his military might more than God. You know, we're told that he had these men and how many he had, but it was never David really counting these guys to figure out, okay, where does that put me on the totem pole with these other countries? Even Joab, his military commander, sees it. Hey, God always, it's God that gives us victory, not our power. It's God that causes three men to fight through an entire garrison and wins. It's God that causes one man to be able to kill 800. You know, this is a God thing. None of these men are even thinking, oh yeah, that's because I'm that good. No, they're like, well, that's just a God thing. Because me stepping on a rock the size of a golf ball during that battle. And I could have been slaughtered. 
they got that better than anybody. So he's, he's trusting in his military might rather than God. But here's the key. Right after the census is completed, and Joab's kind of entrusted with carrying that out, and he doesn't really do a super job on that because he's not totally into it. Right after it's completed, the text tells us David's heart was troubled. Nobody came to him at this point. Just his conscience is bothering you. Anybody experience that? You do something, and then later you're thinking, ah, I should not, that was wrong. I, should not, I was trying to justify it, but now that I'm looking back on it, that was self-serving, that was prideful, that was wrong. Well, that's what happens. His heart was troubled. He confessed it to God. But then God says there are still some consequences. So God sends a prophet, his name is Gad, and he comes and God tells Gad to offer to David, okay, your consequences, I'm going to let you pick. It's the choice between three things. So three bad things you pick as a consequence of doing this. One, seven years of famine. The whole country, seven years of famine. Two, three months of being defeated by your enemies. You're fleeing, you're on the run, your enemies are overrunning the place, three months. Seven years of famine, three months of fleeing from your enemies, or third, three days of plague. Three days of a disease that's gonna come in and wipe everybody out. Not everybody, but you know. And so David picks the plague. It goes like this, 2 Samuel 24, 14. Then David said to Gad, I'm in great distress, let us now, because he's talking about, think about this choice. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And 70,000 men of the people from Dan, that's up northern edge of Israel, to Beersheba, southern edge, 70,000 men died. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, it's enough, now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who is striking down the people. This is right on the edge of Jerusalem. And said, behold, it's I who have sinned. It is I who've done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? He's talking about his people. Please let your hand, talking to God, please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So David basically offers himself as a substitute to God which is amazingly similar to what Jesus did from David's line 1,000 years later. Verse 18, so Gad came to David that day and said to him, God sends the prophet again, go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Now, a threshing floor, if you'll remember, is typically kind of a flat rock, that's usually up somewhere like on a hill or something. And then they, they grind their grain to separate the shell from the kernel. And they would do that usually with an ox pulling a stone or something that's rubbing it. And then when that was done, they would take the broken pieces 
on a more windy day or in the afternoon and they would throw that up in the air and the wind would blow away the shaft and the kernels would drop and you would have your grain. So that's a threshing floor. Verse 19. David went up according to the word of Gad. Just as the Lord had commanded. Arana looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him. So here's David coming up from the city of David. And this guy, Arana, he sees him coming looking down the hill. And Arana went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. Then Arana said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you. In order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be held back from the people. Arana said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what's good in his sight. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges, and the yokes of oxen for the wood. Everything, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. However, the king said to Arana, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. David's saying, no, you can't give it to me, then it's not my sacrifice. And this is interesting, because he's a king, and you're wondering, well, how much sacrifice? This is a principle that we see all through Scripture. We're sitting in this room, and, and how are we sitting in this room? Because a bunch of people from grace, a lot of them are still sitting in this room, sacrificially gave money so that we can build this room and these seats. It was a sacrifice. It was when our church was 600 and something, we built a thousand seat auditorium that you're sitting in. Sacrificial giving. That's not everybody chip in 10 bucks. You understand that, right? Sacrificial giving means I'm going to give something that costs me something that will alter the way I live. Not just, yeah, what I have, you know, that I could just give out and I'm never going to miss it. No, it's a sacrifice for me to give this. Sacrificial giving, something that costs. And what that does when we do that is it shows God that we trust God for our finances more than our bank account. It's just a principle that God wants us to learn. We continue in verse 24. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Now this is interesting. This is about a pound and a quarter of silver. You know, today I think that might be under 500 bucks. You know, so here David buys this land and he gets this threshing floor. For 500 bucks or so, he buys the most contested piece of real estate in the world. Remember, this is the old city of David. And then that jet out, we talked about this before for Gihon Springs, which is a way they could have water if they were ever under siege. They had a spring, and later that was, you know, they, they tunneled under so they could get that from the regular wall. But anyway, where you see the arrow, that's Mount Moriah. That's up there. That's outside the city of David. But that's in what we call today Jerusalem. So back in that day, maybe the next slide will kind of show what that might look like. 
you know, here's the edge of the city of David. Again, artist rendering. What it would have looked like 3,000 years ago. And then there'd just be a path up there. And then that's where there's a rock and this guy's threshing his grain. And so David buys that spot. Here's what it looks like today. The next slide, yep. You know, down at the bottom, kind of bottom middle, that's the old being excavated right now, city of David. And then all that's been built up, but that was just a gradual slope up to the highest part, which is where the Dome of the Rock is. Where Israel owns this land, but they allow the Muslims to control the Temple Mount. But what's significant about that? This spot where he buys this threshing floor is where his son Solomon will build the temple to God. And then that temple will be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And then that temple will be rebuilt by Zerubbabel. And then just before the first century, it will be greatly enhanced by Herod the Great. And then it will be great, de completely destroyed again in 70 AD by Rome, Titus, when they come in and wipe out. And then through a secession, you know, finally the... You know, as you go down, I, don't, I better not do that because then I'm going to throw off my timing. You know, but it's Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the, the Ottoman Empire, then the British, then the Palestine. It's all connected to what we see in the news every day today. But that's another story. Anyway, as we continue, number 25. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by the prayer for the land and the plague was held back from Israel. God relents before the three days are up. Why? He said three days. Why? Because David repented. He actually stopped before then because David was already repentant. But he stops. And notice, when David repents, David's learned something. He's learned one of his lessons here. He doesn't have to wait until he's confronted by the prophet Gad. He was already troubled in his heart. He was already repenting for God. And so David offers a substitute. Kill me, let these people live. And God says, you know, okay, I'll accept that, but I'm not gonna take you. I'll let you offer an animal. And so they offer this sacrifice up on this hill, which is the same hill that Abraham offered his son Isaac, remember? And God said, no, you know, I've been promising you Isaac all this time, and now Isaac's come your, Isaac has become your God. I want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham says, you know, okay, takes him up, and he's about to do that. And God says, stop, don't do that, and provides an animal. Same exact spot of then the Jewish temple and now the Dome of the Rock. And 2 Samuel closes. And all of that is pointing forward in history to the ultimate payment of our sins, Jesus Christ, in the same area. And so we're not quite done. We're done with 2 Samuel, but we're not quite done with David's life. The last lesson. Do God's will and don't be passive. Take action. Do God's will 
Don't be passive. Take action. Remember, David was a man of action except when it came to his family. When it came to his family, David was passive. And his passivity caused major dysfunction in his family. Remember, if you were here, you know, Amnon rapes his half sister. These are all son, these are all kids of David. Amnon rapes his half sister Tamar. Two years later, Absalom murders Amon, Amnon. You know, and on and on it went. Just a mess because of David's sin and his passivity. Because he didn't punish Amnon, he didn't punish Absalom. Now, First Kings one, one. So new book, next book, first, first verse. Now King David was old, advanced in age, and they covered him with clothes, but he couldn't keep warm. Now some of you can relate to that probably over the last week or so. You're feeling the same way at home. Anybody? Yeah, I can't get warm. But here David's health is failing. And the nation knows that soon he's going to die. We'll pick it up in verse 5. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, which not a great name for a lady, but anyway, whatever. Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. And some of you are thinking, hey, I heard about the chariot and the 50 men running. Yeah, that's exactly what his older full brother Absalom did. Before Absalom Led his revolt. And then check out the next verse. So that's what he's doing. He's sort of taking control, acting like he's king, saying he will be king, when God's already said, no, Solomon's going to be the next king, like son number eight or ten or something. Verse six. His father had never crossed him at any time by asking, why have you done so? This is it. This is the passivity of David. Now we have another son doing wrong, son number three, that's saying, hey, I'm going to take over the throne. And he starts assembling people, bodyguards and officials to get on his side. And David's never confronting him, just like he didn't with his other, other sons. It's parental passivity. So Adonijah, David's oldest surviving son, he surrounds himself with bodyguards. He conspires Check this out, with Joab, that's his most trusted military commander, and Abiathar, that's a priest who's been with him since he was fleeing with, from Saul. They all conspire to take the throne. So then Adonijah has a pre-coronation feast. And he does this just like a mile down the road from Jerusalem. And he invites all of his siblings, his brothers, and the city officials, but strategically, he does not invite Solomon, because he knows Solomon's supposed to be the next king, or prophet Nathan, or Zadok the priest, or Benaiah, David's bodyguard. You know, those guys aren't welcome, but he has this party. Now, Nathan, he knows what's going on, so he goes, he knows Solomon's life's in danger. Maybe Bathsheba's too. So he gets to Bathsheba, tells Bathsheba what's going on, who's Solomon's mother. Then 
Bathsheba can gain entry to David, who's not feeling well and sick and being cared for by a young lady. She goes in there, has an audience with him. She tells David, hey, Adonijah, he's, he's getting ready to take over. And then about that time, Nathan, who started all this, he comes in, he backs Bathsheba up. Yeah, that's exactly what's happened. You said Solomon, you said God said that Solomon was next on the throne. What's going on? And then finally, David has learned his lesson. And rather than to remain passive like he was all through the sins of his sons before, now he takes immediate action. He grabs Nathan, Zadok, Benaiah, and he instructs him, I need you to get my son Solomon. I want you to, to take my mule and give him the trappings of the king and parade him down the side of Jerusalem, the eastern side, to Gihon. That's where the spring is. I want you to take him down there. I want you to officially anoint him as king of Israel and parade back. And they do that, and the city's rejoicing, and everybody's excited, and the city's going nuts. And then a mile down the road, while Adonijah's eating, they're going, hey, what, what's all that noise? And Joab, the military guy, goes, that's coming from Jerusalem. And then a runner comes in and says, hey, they just anointed Solomon as king of Israel. And David's rejoicing and Solomon's rejoicing. He's going to co-reign with David until he dies and take over. And that party kind of ends right there. I mean, they're out. They're gone. They scatter. David's learned. Not to be passive, even with his family, and especially with his family. And I got to tell you, that runs rampant in our culture today. Parents who are passive. Parents take action. We talked about before, well, what if I've lost my moral authority? Confess that to your kids and take action. They probably already know. You know, if they know... Then admit it and say, yeah, that was wrong. I don't want you to do it too. Take action. It's the same thing with this vote on Tuesday. This is putting our children, your children, in jeopardy, at risk. Don't sit this one out. Take action. It's what God's calling us to do. So within a year, David dies. And Solomon, his son, rules Israel. And then there's this portion where David gives this super instructive advice. To, but we can't do that because we're out of time. <laughs> but that may show up in the next series, maybe even next Sunday. I'll see, but whatever. We're out of time. Believers, actively. What's, why is all this written? Why so much about David? Because God's trying to teach us a bunch of lessons here. And one of them is, believer, believer, if you're a believer, do God's will. Christianity cannot be just sprinkled into your life as you do your own thing. Believers, do God's will. And he will, well, I, I can't do this. I can't do this. He will strengthen you. And he'll even bring other people, his people, to strengthen you as well. Well, But what if I mess up? If you mess up, number two, what? Repent. Let's say it, because we were kind of quiet on that. Number two, 
If we mess up, we repent. We admit it and say, God, I don't want to do that anymore. And if we truly repent, he will always, always, always forgive us. And then last, do God's will. Don't be passive. Don't just let life kind of go by and you're not taking a stand. Take action. Do what God would have you to do. Let's stand together for prayer. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. God, help us be who we need to be as believers. Lord, we don't want to just come and sit and and just hear history and, and learn more about your word. God, we want to take action and do what you want done in our life. God, you've called us to purpose. Lord, help us to follow that through. And God, and help us to do it because we know your heart. It's out of gratitude that we want to serve you. In Christ's name, amen.